The American History Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2, European Empires in the New World. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, so welcome to the American History Podcast, Episode 2, European Empires in the New World, Part 1. Let me thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. We've had a lot of positive feedback so far. If you'd like to help out with supporting the show, one of the things you can do is head over to iTunes and give us a good review. You can also go to the website, theamericanhistorypodcast.com, sign up for our email um, updates. That way you know when episodes are released. Finally, another way, if you're an Amazon purchaser like myself, is you can go to the website, to, uh, to our website, and whenever you see one of the Amazon buttons or ads, if you enter Amazon through those, whatever you purchase, we're going to get uh, a kickback on. Um, not much, but it's certainly something that helps out. It's a good way to keep the lights on here, and you don't have to actually spend any extra money other than what you're already spending. So if you happen to do that, thank you very much. And you can also follow me on Twitter if you're into the social media thing. Um, the handle is at American HisCast. Also, I should mention, if you are interested in supporting the show, we have a Patreon group. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to the episodes earlier than the general public. You get transcripts of the show, and um, you'll get access to the bonus series, 1983, the year the world almost ended. So head over to Patreon and find us. Or you can go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com website. And down at the bottom, just click on the button, and that'll take you directly to our Patreon page. Now, originally, I recorded this episode in the summer of 2017, when I was very new to podcasting. Now, it is the summer of 2020, and I am re-recording this episode, as well as the previous two. Now, I have a sound editor these days to help make it um, sound much better than it did back three years ago. And while I did not change what was said in those two episodes, I've changed a few things here. So, for example, you will notice a reference to COVID-19. I just thought it only fair to give you a heads up on these changes. Alright, so during the late 15th century to about the 18th century, Europe would be engaged in extensive overseas exploration and would also now emerge as the center of the world, at least in regard to its power, its military power, um, its economic power, that sort of thing. This is what we call the start of the age of European colonialism, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as the first age of empires, the second one starting in the late 19th century with the scramble for Africa and ending in the wake of the Second World War. Now, a question that we should address is why. Why did Europe suddenly become so interested in the rest of the world, and why did it come to dominate the world? Um, we probably could make a whole podcast just around that question, or a book, and indeed, historian Niall Ferguson did that when he published the book Civilization, The West and the Rest, back in 2012. If we were to do an in-depth look at this, it would be not just one episode, but numerous episodes. So let's just take a quick look. First of all, the emerging nation-states in Europe at this time began seeking power in their competition against their rivals. Now, competition was fierce in the 15th century, but became even more so with the addition of a religious component, thanks to the Protestant Reformation, 
That would make it, to some extent, a rivalry between Protestant and Catholic nations, although sometimes you would also get Catholic nations that sided with the Protestants and so forth. That competition is what I believe, and now Ferguson agrees with this assessment, um, that was that this competition drove Europeans to dominate the world. Now, a second factor, one which allowed the Europeans to dominate other peoples, is the creation or the discovery of new technology. This meant that from 1500 onwards, the Europeans could dominate their rivals outside of Europe, using things like gunpowder, mounted cannons on their ships. Um, these things protected expedition from expeditions from rival forces, be they fellow European forces or natives. Furthermore, the Portuguese and Spanish mapped the winds and the, and the currents of the oceans during this time period over most of the globe, and this, at least for a little while, gave both of them an advantage over their rivals. This meant that explorers could now more effectively and efficiently navigate the oceans of the world. Another technology improvement was the development of new ships like the Caravel. These were faster and could travel farther thanks to the development of the Latine sail and the axle rudder. To add to this, you had the development of new instruments to determine latitude by measuring celestial bodies, such as the geometric quadrant, the mariner's astrolabe, and the sextant. So Europeans had the necessary technology um, to allow them to sail ships further and more efficiently than they had been able to do previously. Now another motivator was economic. As Europeans became more and more aware of the riches of the East, they wanted to acquire more of it. However, there were a couple of problems. Often the Venetians were the middlemen, and their monopoly on trade in the region meant prices were quite high. They could set them to be whatever they wanted. Furthermore, after the Turks conquered Constantinople in 1452, their power in the Mediterranean would only be increasing. Thus, it looked as if there were, or there would be, no way to get to the east without going through one or more of these middlemen. Lastly, the Renaissance itself was a motivating factor. It led to an atmosphere in Europe of rebirth, optimism, and a desire to explore and learn about the world. We could go further back and look at the stuff uh, like the Mongols and the Crusades, um, which also played a role in motivating the Europeans to go out and explore. But if we did that, then this episode would be even longer than it's already going to be. Instead, let's just look at Spain and Portugal and what motivated them. So first, let's look at Portugal. Portugal was a leader in exploration in the 15th century, and they were a major European power for decades to come. Indeed, Portugal was a leader in the exploration of the New World, something that is often overlooked or even unknown by most Americans, at least. By the 15th century, the Portuguese had a history of maritime commerce. As early as 1325, Alfonso IV encouraged this, and eventually the Canary Islands would be officially claimed as being under Portuguese patronage. Now, this was disputed by the King of Castile, which meant that the rivalry between the Castilians and the Portuguese was going to expand from the land onto the sea. Now, in the early 15th century, the Portuguese um, captured the city of Queta, which is on Africa's northern coast of the Strait of Gibraltar. It's basically the opposite side there on Africa. This gave the Portuguese the ability to control navigation along the African coast further south, and it opened a young Prince Henry to the possibility of profit presented by the Trans-Saharan trade routes. Like others in the coming years, Prince Henry, known to posterity as a concerted navigator, decided it would be better to cut out the middlemen and transport goods up the trade routes from south and west and simply trade with the people at the point where those trade routes began. Furthermore, 
Henry was also interested in locating a sea route to India and trading directly with the Indians. To achieve this goal, Henry would sponsor expeditions and even create a school of navigation. Thus, he is called the navigator. It's not because he went out and led these expeditions himself. Now, if you're interested in learning more about this, then I would recommend a book called The Golden Age of Prince Henry the Navigator as a good place to start. Another one would be Bailey Diffie's Foundations of the Portuguese Empire, 1415 through 1580. Thus, by 1500, Portugal was a leader in oceanic exploration. While they cannot claim credit for the discovery of the New World, they certainly developed the techniques that led to it. Furthermore, Pedro Cabral, a Portuguese explorer, was hoping to discover a route to India and ended up discovering Brazil. And this is why the Brazilians speak Portuguese and not Spanish. Now, eventually, Brazil became a Portuguese colony, as I'm sure you know. Another explorer, Amerigo Vespucci, ended up exploring Brazil in 1501 through 1502, and he's known to us because later on, he was honored by a German geographer when that German geographer named the world, the New World, I should say, America. Now, eventually, the Portuguese would establish trading stations in Africa, India, the East Indies, and even China, the last of which, Macau, was returned to Chinese control in the late 1990s. Now, a final word about Portugal. It was a Portuguese who first introduced African slavery to the New World. Um, They cooperated with certain tribes in West Africa, capturing people from other tribes, and then selling them into slavery. Eventually, other European powers such as Great Britain, Spain, and the Netherlands would be heavily involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Now, the reason I mention this is that often people, especially here in the United States, when they think about slavery, they automatically think the South. Indeed, most African slaves, about 90% in total, never actually made it to what would become the United States, and instead, they ended up in places in the New World other than the 13 American colonies, places like Brazil or the Caribbean. I'd like to remind the listener that slavery in general had been practiced for thousands of years by countless societies. I'm not trying to excuse the crimes of people who participated in the African slave trade. I simply want to give, uh, give it some context, and it was certainly a disgusting and evil institution. I don't think that needs to be said, but I think the context is extremely important. Okay, now that we've set up the Portuguese, um, we need to discuss the Spanish. In 1469, Ferdinand, who was the heir to the throne of Aragon, he was also the king of Sicily and Sardinia, by the way, as well as the claimant to the throne of Naples, and he's marrying Isabella, the heiress of Castile. And thus, we get the conditions um, to unify Spain under their grandson, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Now, the timing of this alliance, and the couple themselves actually, was politically astute. This happened, they happened, I should say, to preside over the completion of the Reconquista, or the reconquest of Spain, from the Muslims when early in 1492, Granada was captured by the Spanish army, an army which was very international. It was made up of troops from around the Iberian Peninsula, but also included Swiss mercenaries. They used Italian-made cannons that were operated by German technicians, and thus their force had a very international Christian flavor to it. These two Christian monarchs were so important to what would have um, been termed Christendom in the West that Pope Alexander VI in 1494 declared they were Catholic kings and thus wedded the Spanish dynastic power to the religious power of Christianity. Now, in the aftermath of this event, two things took place. The first was the move to rid Spain of all non-Catholic elements. Because of this, approximately 200,000 Jews were forced 
to make a choice between either conversion to Catholicism or expulsion. Most of them chose the latter. Initially, this applied only to Jews, and Muslims were allowed to actually retain their religious rights. However, um, in 1502, Muslims were also forced to convert. Now, part of this is due to occasional rebellions in Spain led by Muslims. If you remember, Spain had been under Muslim control for several centuries at this point, or had been. Um, the Spanish had been slowly taking it back, as well as there was warfare between Spain and the Ottoman Empire. So all of this really, in the Spanish mind, called into question the loyalty of Muslim people on the peninsula. And most Muslims were deported first from Granada, and then by 1609 from the rest of Spain. Now this had, in the end, a negative effect on the Spanish economy, as many of the merchants and bankers were either Jewish or Muslim, due to the fact that Christians, through the Catholic Church, had a ban on engaging in what they termed usury, or the charging of interest for loaning money out to people. So in Spain, as well as many other Christian kingdoms, bankers were often Jews or Muslims, as they were, the most, they were most certainly able to loan money out and charge interest. And while the Spanish economy presented a problem for the monarchs, albeit due to their own actions, another problem for them was the power of large landowners. Spain was, for all intents and purposes, still quite feudal and medieval. Both the landowners, a mainstay of the Spanish economy, and the towns possessed large amounts of land and sort of supported the sovereignty in which they could balance out the power of the monarch. Now, remember, this was not the age of the divine right of kings, and medieval monarchs were not all-powerful dictators. In between the monarch and his subjects, at least in Spain, um, stood both the municipalities and the nobility. Thus, the monarchy had a motivation to look abroad for both land and labor when attempting to mobilize forces for activities such as the Reconquista. Now, as the Ottomans expanded their power further west into the Mediterranean, the Genoese aligned themselves with the Spanish monarchy in an attempt to challenge and roll back the Muslim advances. To do this, the Genoese and other Italian and even German bankers made credit available to the Spanish monarchy, at least some of which would go to fund the expedition of some guy named Christopher Columbus that you might have heard of once or twice. And so we come to good old Christopher Columbus. So let's start, start talking about him. The author Charles Mann notes in his book 1493 that a veritable army of scholars and activists have inundated the public at large with widespread condemnations of this man and his works. They refer to him as a brutal racist, an incompetent administrator and seaman, a religious fanatic, and a greedy maniac. Now, as for these charges, some are true, and others are not quite so accurate, at least not in my mind. Yes, he was brutal, at least by today's standards. As for the charge of racism, I would argue that this is actually incorrect, strictly speaking, as the modern concepts of race had not yet come about. He was surely an incompetent administrator, but I don't think you can really call him an incompetent seaman. He did have some issues, but incompetency, I don't think that's quite correct. As for him being a religious fanatic, again, from a modern perspective and by today's standards, yes, sure he was. But heck, I think most people from his day would be, by our own standards, religious fanatics. Finally, was he greedy? I don't know that he was any more greedy than most. And that's certainly a charge that is often leveled at ambitious people throughout history, whether it be from J.D. Rockefeller to Jeff Bezos and many, many others. So I don't know that I agree with that one. But before we proceed, I'll address the issue of his name. No one in 1492 knew him as Christopher Columbus. His baptismal name was actually Cristoforo Colombo, 
and he was baptized in Genoa, Italy. He eventually changed it to Cristobal Colombo after he moved to Portugal, and then when he moved to Spain in 1485, he again changed his name, and there he was known as Cristobal Colón. Now, because I don't teach elementary kids, I don't know for sure, but I imagine they still teach that he was ahead of his time when he argued that the earth was large and round while everyone else said it was flat. Okay, but there's a problem with this story, and the problem is this. The opposite is true. It had been known since ancient times that the world was round and large. Colón argued that the earth was smaller than other people believed, and while he did not argue that it was flat, he did say that it wasn't perfectly round, but it was more shaped like a pear, and that the top part of the pear, the stem, that's where the earthly paradise existed, and it was a place that only God could go. Now, more importantly to the Spanish monarchs than his views on the shape of the earth, was his argument that it was 5,000 miles smaller than others believed. Like other members of the European elite, Isabella and her husband Ferdinand were intrigued by the riches of China. They wanted the precious stones, spices, porcelain, and silks that could be obtained from the east. Thus, if the earth was indeed 5,000 miles smaller than what others had calculated, then a journey west across the ocean, one which cut out the Muslim middlemen, might be successful. An experienced seaman who had journeyed from Africa to Iceland, Colombo convinced himself that a degree was 56 and two-thirds miles rather than 69 miles, which is closer to reality. This is where some people charge Christopher Columbus with being kind of an incompetent seaman. Now myself, I don't think he was incompetent as much as I think he just wanted to believe that it was smaller than it was. It was to his benefit to believe that. Of course, lucky for him, there was the New World standing in between Asia and Europe. Had the New World not been there, then he would have been in real trouble. Now, the king and queen submitted his proposal to a group of experts who actually disagreed with his findings, but, oddly enough, the monarchy decided to ignore their own experts and fund the expedition anyway. So, as we know, Cristobal did not discover the Indies, which he said he had, but instead he found himself in the Western Hemisphere, having landed on the island that is today home to Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Convincing himself that he was now vindicated, Columbus returned to Spain, where he was showered with riches and honors. However, he died 14 years later, in the year 1506, a wealthy man, but also a very bitter man. Evidence had emerged on what was wrong, that Christopher hadn't in fact discovered a new, uh, had in fact discovered a new continent. Thus, he was shunted aside, his honors revoked. That kind of would be expected in light of the new evidence. While Christopher Columbus did die incorrect in his belief that he had found the western route to China, the effects of his discovery, well, discovery using Crosby terms, the Columbian Exchange would have far-reaching effects, so monumental that they are still with us today. The effects of the Columbian Exchange are indeed so far-reaching that some biologists argue that as voyages started, a new era in which places that were once ecologically distinct are now more alike, and the world we live in like it or not, was almost created by Columbus, even if it was an accident. Now, one of the things we can't ignore was his and Spain's brutality towards the natives. The indigenous Arawaks, who possessed gold and tobacco, were virtually exterminated by Columbus and his followers. No doubt, Columbus treated the people that he encountered in the Americas with a harsh hand. However, the organizational structures and the exploitative techniques that the Spanish would employ in the New World were not developed by Colón. 
According to historian Charles Mann again, Europeans first tried these techniques during the Crusades, at which time the Europeans also learned to love sugar and to raise it for profit. First tested by the Spanish, these techniques were refined in the Canaries, where they learned how to quickly uh, a native group could disappear and be replaced with imported labor to grow crops for export to mainland Europe. So was Columbus a hero or a villain? I would come down on the side of somewhere in between, a position which, if one of my students took on an essay, I would definitely not accept. So if you're listening, don't do that. However, I'm not my students, so I'm going to cheat. At the end of the day, I don't see him as a villain per se, certainly not the Darth Vader-like figure that some portray him as having been. However, he is not what I would term a decent human being, not in the slightest. While he simply reflected the values of his time period, the truly great human beings are able to transcend those values. It is easy to be against slavery, say, today in 2020. No one in his right mind is going to call for a return to the use of slave labor, except perhaps when it comes to military service, but that's a discussion for another day. However, it would be truly brave to bet against or to be against slavery in, say, 1790 or maybe 1690. Columbus, when it came to his brutality, is definitely not a credit to the human race. However, his voyages did help to, in essence, restitch the continents together, in a way reforming Pangaea and reversing millions of years of history. For the first time in 200 million years, the flora and fauna of both sides of the old and the new world would be able to interact. And, living as we are today in 2020 with COVID-19 and a global pandemic, we are still seeing the results of the coming together of the old world and the new. Now, another effect of these voyages is the creation of the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494. Now, this treaty, authored by Pope Alexander VI, divided all lands and uh, that were discovered outside of Europe between the Portuguese and the Count of Castile, or Spain. The line itself was drawn halfway between Cape Verde Islands, the Cape Verde Islands, which was already in the possession of Portugal, and those discovered by Columbus in his first voyage. Now, eventually, in 1529, the Treaty of Zaragoza would divide the other side of the world. Interestingly, this treaty omitted other European powers who simply ignored it, especially when some of those powers, for example England, became Protestant. The treaty itself ended up cutting off a portion of South America, which would become a Portuguese colony, Brazil. It has even been invoked in the last few decades by Argentina in its claim to the Falklands or the Malvinas Islands, as well as by Chile in their claim to a portion of land in the Antarctic. Finally, another result of the treaty was that Spain had no access to the African slave trade and would have to depend on others to supply its empire with laborers from Africa. So while Columbus gets the credit, justified or not, for discovering the New World, the conquest um, would have to be accomplished by others. First in a long line of conquistadores was Hernán Cortés. He successfully conquered the Aztecs with the help of local natives and some disease called smallpox in 1521. It should be noted that smallpox had drastically weakened the Aztecs, which made the conquest possible. The result of this was dramatic. The treasure plundered from the Aztecs made the Spanish elite ecstatic. Furthermore, it funded a series of costly foreign wars, one overlapping the other, launched by the monarchy against France, the Ottoman Empire, and even the Protestants in the territory of the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically Central European area of Germany and Austria. By the end of the century, warfare then spread into the Netherlands, which at this time was in Spanish possession. 
It even spread from Europe across the world to the Philippines and back again. In the end, it even drew England into the war um, as Spain launched a naval invasion of the island. The Spanish Armada, as this invasion was called, was defeated, and the fight to quell the rebellion in the Netherlands also ended poorly for Spain. She might have been the world's greatest power in the 16th century, but she had bitten off more than she could chew, and by the middle of the 17th century, the long, ignominious decline of the Spanish Empire was well underway. In the meantime, the wealth continued to flow from Spain to the, from the New World to Spain, thanks to Francisco Pizarro and his successful conquest of the Incas, whom he defeated in 1532. Once again, this was thanks to the disease which decimated the Incan Empire prior to his arrival. The Incas had vast amounts of gold and silver in Peru. And when that's added to the silver that was mined from Potosi in Peru and the mines in Mexico, the wealth was voluminous indeed. So immense was the amount of silver that came out of these mines that the world's stock of precious metals would also almost triple. The aforementioned Potosi, which is in modern-day Bolivia, was one of the biggest and richest silver strikes in all of human history. Now, when discussing Potosi, Charles Mann notes that it's at the foot of an extinct volcano that is as close to a mountain of pure silver as, as is possible. Potosi itself was a town, as a town was a sort of brawling, crowded boomtown that you would expect under such circumstances. It was marked by the display of extravagant wealth and crime that is characteristic of such places throughout history. Furthermore, it was also an example of the devious efficiency of Spanish extraction and refining techniques. Indian workers would carry ore on their backs up from the depths of the mine and then extract the silver using extremely toxic mercury. Ore would then be transformed into either uh, bars of almost pure silver, which weighed approximately 65 pounds, or they would be turned into coins. The Spanish peso of this period was the de facto world currency, in much the same way that the U.S. dollar has been the world currency since the end of World War II. The silver would then be loaded onto llamas for transport to the coast of Chile. There, they would be loaded onto ships and sent to Lima, the capital of the Viceroyalty of Peru, the seat of Spanish colonial government in the New World. Next, the silver was loaded onto military transports and shipped around the world. Now, as noted above, the Spanish used forced labor, enslaving American Indians to extract the precious metals in South America, and in Mexico, the same system was used but eventually, Indian workers there would be replaced with African slaves that were purchased from Portuguese slave traders. Portugal pioneered the use of African slaves in the New World, and slavery would become the primary source of labor for the Portuguese in the sugarcane fields of Brazil and the Caribbean. In the meantime, the Spanish Empire continued to grow, stretching from modern California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, and all the way across to Florida and down the tip of South America. To administer this vast realm, the Spanish transplanted their laws, their religion, and language, which laid the foundations for a score of Spanish-speaking countries. St. Augustine, a fortress that was erected by the Spanish in 1565, is the oldest European settlement in the United States, the purpose of which was to protect the Spanish Southeast Territory from France, as well as the sea lanes of the Caribbean. Well, it might seem as if every Spaniard had no issue with the way the natives were being treated, but this is incorrect. In fact, Bartolomeo de las Casas, a Spanish-Dominican friar, condemned Spanish cruelty toward the Indians and the murder of American Indians in his History of the Indies. However, when he condemned the treatment of natives, he then condoned the use of African slaves. An unfortunate result of his writing was the creation of what is known as the Black Legend. The Black Legend is an exaggerated view that the, it was advanced by the Protestant countries, 
that only Spain killed for Christ, enslaved Indians, stole their gold, infected them with disease, and left nothing but death and misery behind. It sounds very much like the modern way, uh, the way modern politicians speak about members of the opposition. As for the exact origins of this type of propaganda, we can't say for certain. However, we do know that in 1555, Pope Paul IV said of the Spaniards, they are, quote, heretics, schismatics, a curse of God, the offspring of Jews and Maranos, end quote. Now, the term Marano was a term for Jews who had remained in Spain, having converted and continued to practice Judaism in secret, what Spanish Catholics thought were, quote, the very scum of the earth, end quote. Harsh words indeed, and it's ironic considering that just a few short decades before this, the Spanish and the church were the best of friends. The Eighty Years' War, also known as the Dutch Wars of Independence, also saw the Dutch and the English depict Spaniards as bloodthirsty Philistines, comparing them to Arabs. Now, having noted the arguments against the Spanish, there were, of course, proponents of Spanish policy, notably one Juan de Sepulveda, a Spanish humanist. He justified the Spanish conquest of the West Indies, arguing that American Indians were natural slaves, using Aristotle as his justification. Now, Sepulveda was a very well-read man, and he pulled from other Christian sources as well, not just Aristotle, and include, these included the Bible. Although we see his opinions as extremely racist by today's standards, the reality of his day is that his views were widely held and sadly not very exceptional. The one thing I've remarked upon, actually there are quite a few things, but this is I think this one is important. I guess they're all important, but you get my point, is the fact that all of this violence, all of this death is being instigated by agents of the state. Columbus was an agent of the Spanish monarchy. Cortés, Pizarro, conquistadors, all of them are agents of the state. You hear just in talking to the average person about the death and suffering that's caused by, say, religion in human history. And some will say religion has caused more death than any other institution. As a matter of fact, I get students who say this all the time. If I remember correctly, this is actually a Marxist criticism. But that makes me wonder, was it religion? No doubt, religion has done just that. But why does the state get off scot-free here? We blame the individual conquistadors, and rightfully so, but the state made it possible. The very nature of the state is indeed violence. As the eminent 20th century uh, economist Murray Rothbard notes in his essay, Anatomy of the State, the government is that organization which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territory. It obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution of payment for services rendered, but through coercion. No doubt this is exactly what the Spanish were doing in the New World. They were obtaining revenue by getting native peoples to contribute to the mining of silver. How did they do it? They did it through coercion. If we were all educated in religious schools, we would never um, criticize a religion for any of its failings. Would you be surprised? Of course you wouldn't. You would expect it. But we are all, or most of us, are educated in government schools. So should we be surprised then that we rarely criticize governments for crimes against humanity which the government engages in? And the death and destruction that is visited upon the inhabitants of the Americas is certainly one of them. Now, speaking of systems of violence and coercion, a complex case uh, system would emerge in the New World during the 16th and 17th centuries. And here we are specifically talking about Spain's empire. It contained four major categories based upon what we would refer to as race. The first category being the peninsulares, they were European or Spanish-born whites. Creoles 
were the second category. They were children of Spanish-born parents, but they themselves were born in the New World. The third category was American Indians, and then the fourth, they were Africans. Now, the important of your caste is that you would, deter would you determine your social privileges and restrictions. In general, the lighter your skin, the higher up encased you were. As you can see, transplanted Europeans were on top, while transplanted African slaves were at the bottom. Now, eventually, the system became more complex and gradations would be developed. For example, the children of Spanish fathers and Indian mothers were referred to as mestizos. The children of Spanish fathers and African mothers were mulattoes. And finally, the children of American Indians and Africans were Sambo. So what was the result of um, these, con these contacts? For American Indians, it was mass genocide. By 1600, nearly 90% of Native peoples in the Americas had perished. An example that we can use of this is the southeastern United States. De Soto, the Spanish conquistador who explored that part of the world looking for gold and a passage to China, noted the vast numbers of Native peoples who lived in the region. A century later, as French explorers came down the Mississippi River, they noted a far different region. According to them, the land was empty of people. So how do we account for the differences in their tales? Well, we could say that one is lying, either the Spanish or the French. However, I feel this is very unlikely, as they had no reason to do so. Another explanation, a far better explanation, is that De Soto expedition took pigs with it. And this we know for sure. Now, I love pig, especially if he's on my plate. It's a beautiful meal. Um, pork, bacon, pork chops. Yeah, I'm ready to go. However, let's not get distracted. Pigs are linked to passing germs. The Spanish themselves would have also been carrying germs of numerous old world diseases with them as well, including smallpox, measles, chickenpox, whooping cough, typhus, typhoid fever, bubonic plague, cholera, scarlet fever, malaria, yellow fever, diphtheria, and the already mentioned influenza. So all of this had devastating effects on the native peoples. Death tolls just in the first wave would probably have been somewhere around 50%, give or take. Now, the fact that often disease moved ahead of the Europeans, as we saw with the Aztecs and the Incas, meant that the Europeans oftentimes encountered peoples already affected by the pandemic. A further result would be an inaccurate reading of just how many native um, natives had originally lived in the Americas. An example of the extreme death toll seen in Central America and in the Caribbean, the population there is now estimated to have been 25 million in 1519, but by 1605, only 1 million remained. This result as nothing short of cataclysmic. Disease affected the natives' culture, religion, their entire way of life. However, there were other effects as well. The natives of the North American Great Plains, the Apache, the Blackfoot, and the Lakota, to name a few, were transformed thanks to the Spanish. Horses, cattle, and swine, on the one hand, bringing death and destruction, would also bring a new source of food. Firearms would intensify warfare among the tribes and would also lead to depopulation in certain areas, such as the eastern woodlands. Another effect was the Columbian Exchange, uh, as we mentioned before, a term coined by Alfred Crosby, where items such as corn um, going to Africa, sweet potatoes that were native to the Americas um, coming to Europe, horses and apples uh, to the Americas, rhubarb and eucalyptus from the Americas to Europe. They also sapped out a host of organisms that may be familiar with this or to us, grasses, bacteria, and even earthworms, which are not native to the New World. 
new foods such as tomatoes and sweet potatoes would transform European diets. I mean, let's face it, who can think of Italian food without tomato sauce? As the grandchild of a Neapolitan grandmother, I certainly cannot. And these all lead to population growth. Furthermore, it stimulated new sources of mineral wealth. It led to the shift from feudalism and a barter economy in Europe to the development of a money-based economy. For Europeans, it meant that they developed the first global empires. As I just mentioned, the economy would change from barter-based to one based on money. However, the influx of mass amounts of silver also led to extreme inflation. Sometimes it's referred to as the price revolution. And not only did you have a revolution in diet, thanks to corn, beans, tomatoes, and potatoes, which helped stimulate immigration, but you also had the rise of stimulants because you had products such as coffee, cocoa, and tobacco. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, the time is a little bit longer than what I had planned, but please, if you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes and give us a, a great review. Um, that's really helpful for getting attention for people who are searching the iTunes store. Maybe they're looking for a podcast to listen to. It makes it more likely that they'll see us. Also, share with your friends and your family members on social media. Um, you can subscribe, as I said earlier, to our mailing list at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. I send out emails there, but I promise you I'm not going to bombard your inbox with a bunch of junk. And finally, if you'd like to help keep the lights on or help us pay for server space or whatnot, um, you can do so through Amazon. If you head there from our website, um, we'll get a small bit of pennies from Uncle Jeff. Um, you don't have to buy the, the item that it suggests. You just click on Enter Amazon through there and buy whatever you want. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.